Welcome to Homegrown History with Limestone County archivist Rebecca Davis and longtime Athens, Alabama native Richard Martin. Each episode, Richard and Rebecca bring to life some of the famous and infamous stories etched in Limestone County's rich history. Hello and welcome to another episode of Homegrown History, your Limestone County History podcast. I am your co-host, Rebecca Davis, the archivist at the Limestone County Archives. I am here with my co-host. I'm Richard Martin, the oldest one here. That's right. Thank you for joining us again. And today we have another couple of special guests and a really great topic to discuss today. We're going to talk about the Scottsboro Boys case of the 1930s and local hero, I I think he's a hero, Judge James Edwin Horton Jr. And that's something that the Limestone County Archives has been very active involved with, but also today we have two more experts in this topic. Um, First and foremost, we have Peggy Towns, who is here from Decatur. Peggy is, I think, the preeminent historian of African-American history in North Alabama. Amen. And, Amen. Amen. Yes. And she has written several books. She's done countless programs and outreach efforts. Her latest book is Scottsboro Unmasked. Decay- oh, it's not her latest book. She's still working on another one. No. Actually, where have you been? It's the Limestone <laughs> County Archives, obviously. I, I published a, a book, Scapegoat, the Tommy Lee Hines story, in That's November right. of last year. Oh, we'll have to talk about that later. So her not most recent book is Scottsboro Unmasked, Decatur's story that talks about the Decatur connection to the Scottsboro Boys case. Peggy, we appreciate you coming up here from Decatur to join us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Always a delight to talk to Peggy. And we also have someone from even farther away. We have Steve Brown. He is a professor at Auburn University who has also written a book, Alabama Justice, The Cases and Faces That Changed a Nation. So Steve, um, he has studied extensively on this case as well. Steve and I also spent a good couple of years going here and there around the state with Alabama Humanities Alliance Road Scholars Program to give training sessions to police officers regarding this case. So Steve, he came up from Auburn this morning and braved the traffic. So thank you, Steve, for being here with us today. Thank you. We appreciate y'all being here. So I'd like to jump right in to the case. And actually, um, would one of you like to start in with the background of what happened and who were the Scottsboro Boys? Okay, so May 1931, a group of hobos jump a train in Chattanooga, headed back to Alabama, or through Alabama, I should say, on the way to Memphis. Uh, Hobos, black and white. So just as the train crossed into Alabama, a fight ensued between white and black hobos. Uh, the blacks got the best of the whites. The whites jump off and Stevenson, mm-hmm. they report the fight to a storekeeper who actually was a part-time deputy. Mm-hmm. He calls the sheriff. The sheriff calls ahead to Scottsburg, but the train had just sped by. Mm-hmm. And so then he calls to Paint Rock and tell them to deputize every person that you can and bring in every Negro on the train. Mm-hmm. And so a posse is lined up on each side of the railroad track with makeshift weapons, guns, uh, pitchforks and everything. And so when the train stops, they pull off nine black youth as well as three whites. Mm-hmm. 
So these were all young men that were pulled off. But among these hobos that were pulled off were two young women, young white women, wearing men's clothing, weren't they? That's correct. And um, they kind of took off. And uh, when they got stopped, they said, we were raped. And their names were Victoria Price and Ruby Bates. And Ruby Bates. So they were from Huntsville, and they had been up in Chattanooga, too. Tell us a little bit about what happened next, Steve. Well, so just to back up to when they were pulled off the train, my understanding is that uh, when the young men were pulled off the train, they were basically going to be charged with assault. Uh, and they were tied up, put onto a flatbed truck, and then uh, taken into Scottsboro. And after they left is when these two young women emerged. And then the allegations of rape. And so by that evening, um, the Scottsboro jail is surrounded by people who have now heard about these allegations of rape of, by these nine young black men ages 13 to 19, about 13 to 20. And, uh, and it's, it's a mob. It's an absolute mob that night. And no one's questioned these young women in terms of the veracity of their allegations. It's just assumed that these young men, all of them, have done this. And uh, an early hero in this is Sheriff Matt Wad, uh, who's a sheriff there in Scottsboro, who is able to keep the mob away long enough uh, so that the National Guard could be called in to protect the young men. And they're taken to Decatur and, and jailed there. But for that evening, uh, it looked very likely that they'd all be lynched. Right. Well, and it's my understanding that within just a couple of weeks, they were all tried and all found guilty, just one after the other. Mm-hmm. All but one. That's right. That's right. And, and that was the youngest. Yes. But even he went to jail. That's right. Even he went to jail. And when you say day. youngest, he was only, what, 12? 12. Some people say 13. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yes. Right. All of these were teenagers at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of note, one of them, he had uh, STDs so badly he couldn't even walk. Another one was blind. And um, the doctor who examined the women at the time. Another hero. Yes. Yep. That's right. Even then, he said, you know, this doesn't really appear, their story doesn't match up with the evidence. But it was 1931. Yellow Mama had just been built, the electric chair, and was quickly taking the place of ropes around the South. And one of the things that could get a black man lynched quicker than anything was allegations of assault or even attempted assault on a white woman, regardless of the woman's character. And these two women, um, like I said, they were hobos. They were also known to be prostitutes in the mill villages in Huntsville. And um, that's really why they were crossing the lines. And so as the evidence showed over the years, over the trials, once it came to retrial, really their story didn't add up. But that's what it was like. And in fact, when they announced the guilty verdicts in Scottsboro, there was a huge mob there that cheered, and the band, the local band, played There'll Be a Hot Time in Old Town Tonight. And Dixie. Uh, yep, that's right, and Dixie. And so, you know, this was just business as usual in the Jim Crow South when it came to something like that. And a black man could pretty much expect sure and certain death if he was accused of defiling what was considered pure white Southern womanhood. And so... All of Alabama and the South were really shocked when the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the convictions, weren't they? And it was on the grounds of incompetent defense because their defense lawyer, one person noted that he was so stewed he could scarcely walk straight. Yeah, and I would only say a couple of the young men came from Chattanooga. Actually, four of the young men from Chattanooga. Uh, Stephen Roddy was a real estate attorney who had dealings with both white and black clients. 
And uh, the ministers of some African-American churches up there said, can you go down there and just observe this? And mm-hmm. uh, just, you know, they didn't dare come down themselves. They said, as a white attorney, can you go down there and, and check this out? And so he shows up. And uh, basically, when the trial is about to begin, and when Judge, Judge Hawkins asks, so who's here for the young men? The only one that is there is a Scottsboro attorney named Milo Moody, who is very, very old. He'd been a member of the 1901 Constitutional Convention and uh, had been in, apparently a lawyer of some repute at one point, but this time is very, very old. Mm-hmm. They called him an old, doddering, senile old fool, I think is how wow. he was characterized. So anyway, um, Judge Hawkins is an interesting guy because he, knowing the circumstances, uh, he said, we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. Uh, we're not going to leave this up to Judge Lynch. We're going to have a trial. We're going to do these things. He seemed to be very focused on due process right up to the start of the trial. That when Milo Moody is appointed to be counsel, and when he says, is anybody else here to help? Stephen Roddy stands up and says, I'm, I'm, here to, mm-hmm. I'm here to assist. And in the course of a conversation that's reprinted in the Supreme Court opinion, Judge Hawkins says, oh, sorry, you're the guy that's going to help. He says, well, I'm going to assist. And he says, so you're the man. Uh, Milo Moody can help you. And he, he begs off any way he can, saying, mm-hmm. I haven't had time. I don't know the procedure down here. I probably have to just step out. And uh, Hawkins says, no, you're the guy, and gives him 25 minutes to meet with his clients. Wow. What I find fascinating about all of this is that uh, whether he was stewed or not, that's one of the one of the guards mentioned mm-hmm. that. And even Clarence Norris said he smelled of alcohol mm-hmm. during that 25 minutes. But he tries to get a change of venue because of all the, the press coverage, early press coverage. And uh, Judge Hawkins says, you can't demonstrate that the press coverage was, was so biased that it'll affect the outcome of this trial. He tries to undercut Victoria Price's testimony. And again, the state of Alabama is going to go ahead and object to his questioning. All of those objections are upheld. When he tries to object himself, all of those are turned down. Uh, he tries every way he can. And so I know the, the common uh, wisdom about him is he was drunk and he was out of his league. He was definitely out of his league. But he did the best he could. That I, and I personally think a sober attorney on behalf of the Scottsboro Boys at that time wouldn't have done any better. When yeah. you look at the trial transcript, he clearly is trying to gauge the best he can. But uh, so, yes, when it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, the court says a real estate attorney from Tennessee that is having his first criminal trial in a capital case in Alabama uh, 25 minutes with clients, has no time to prepare. It was ineffective counsel and remands the case back down to Alabama to do the right way. And I might add that when the case was decided here in Scottsboro, it went to Alabama Supreme Court. The Chief Justice uh, Anderson of the Alabama Supreme Court said the same thing in dissent. said, these guys, the same whole thing was ramrodded through. It should have taken more time and a little bit more care. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, but yeah, Stephen Roddy definitely was out of his, out of his league. And right at that same time, too, Eugene Williams, they found out that he was too young to stand trial as well. That's right, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, so, once they remanded it back down, then there was a change of venue to Decatur, mm-hmm. Alabama, and the Morgan County, old Morgan County Courthouse. That's correct. So, that's where the Decatur connection comes in, and then they had to pick a judge, and then the Athens-Limestone County connection was Judge Horton, and he was a very, he did not set out to be a civil rights hero. He came from a family, his father was Judge Horton Sr., he was the probate judge in Limestone County. Side note, great, great man, horrible, horrible handwriting. We have his probate records at the Limestone County Archives, you can't read them. They're, they're just totally illegible, and I'm pretty good at reading old, cursive, crappy handwriting these days. I have to read Richard's handwriting, and I've done it for years, and it's awful. But Judge Horton's is worse. 
But that, you know, they were a very prominent white family here in town. They had owned slaves um, before emancipation. They still had the help in their family. And so, you know, he did, he did not set out to be, he did not come with some sort of bias of, you know, I'm going to make my name by civil rights. But he was known to be a fair judge. And so he was tapped to take on this case, which is really sort of like what you mentioned with um, Roddy. Nobody really wanted this hot potato, at, at least at first. Nobody in the South did, for sure. That's right. But the, the Alabama Supreme Court were the ones that, that selected him. They could have picked anybody else, but because of his reputation for fairness and other things, they thought, he's, he's the guy. We've already looked poorly because of the Supreme Court decision. He's the guy that will make sure it will be done right. And uh, so they already had that type of reputation for fairness and for doing the right thing. Exactly. Well, and while nobody in the South may have wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole, it did start off a tug-of-war, didn't it, between the NAACP and the Communist Party. Do either of you want to kind of address that? Or I can. <laughs> I was just saying that the Communist Party early on was, was probably the first uh, integrated social movement that you'd had since before the Civil War. Uh, temperance, the temperance movement, some early uh, women's rights movement, different things like that had been integrated as well. But the Communist Party, they said the ills of this system, of the capitalist system, affect both whites and blacks. And they mm-hmm. had uh, a great deal of African-American support. So they jumped in pretty early on. The NAACP tried to as well, but by that time, the, the young men, their families had committed to the uh, Communist Party's, uh, again, the ILD, which was the International Labor Defense right. uh, Organization, which was their legal arm. And uh, so at that point, yes, it was a little bit of a struggle of, between the two. But, yeah. The other thing that's interesting, unfortunately, is that uh, as this now, particularly during the, the trial in Judge Horton's courtroom, becomes a worldwide phenomenon because of the Communist Party and its worldwide presence, the young men, in my opinion, unfortunately, kind of become a, a useful tool mm-hmm. for both the NAACP and the Communist Party such that when all this is over, for their purposes, uh, the young men are kind of cast aside. And uh, that's, a, that's a sad thing to observe and watch with this. But at the time... Because Communist Party said, in terms of justice and how you ought to treat uh, African Americans and this great injustice happening in Alabama, they were, you know, the poster poster boys for what the Communist Party hoped they could bring about in terms of attracting more support and things like that. Right, right. And then the Communist Party, the International Labor Defense (ILD), they hired what at the time was the best lawyer in the country. That's correct. Samuel Leibowitz from New York. Um, there's a very famous picture. I'm actually looking it up on my screen right now of Leibowitz in the jail cell with all the boys crowded around him as he's taking notes. And um, I want to mention, while I mentioned those photos, I would be remiss not to um, give a shout out to the Morgan County Archives in Decatur, Alabama. They were able to acquire the photos that were taken of the first retrial. And if you want to go take a look at that, they have an exhibit there. They've also have a traveling version of that. And just recently, they got the witness stand that was used during that trial too. So there's a lot of great photos. You can see an image. You actually get the picture of what was going on in that retrial. And Rebecca, those are the only photographs of the trials, period. That's right. Uh, Because when Judge Callahan became jurist, he banned cameras from the courtroom. Yes, that's exactly right. So those are a treasure. Yes. Treasure. And so in the spring of 1933, the retrial began in March uh, of 1933, and Judge Horton was presiding in the Decatur courtroom. And, of course, all the eyes of the world 
were on Judge Horton. And they were all writing, begging for justice. And we know this because of the Lord Bucket. <laughs> I want to mention that. Uh, I'm maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but I want y'all to know some of the ways we know what was going on kind of behind the scenes, beyond the testimony that has been recorded in the official record. Judge Horton kept all the letters, all the newspaper clippings, and everything that was sent to him, telegrams, resolutions, editorials, he kept them all over the course of, from March 1933, all the way through the end of the retrial of Haywood Patterson. He was the first one to be retried, and he was kind of chosen specifically, wasn't he, to be the first? Yes, he was. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, Peggy. Well, Haywood Patterson was actually involved in the fight mm-hmm. on the train, and, and uh, he was more outspoken mm-hmm. than any of the others. So he was chosen first. And actually, uh, Leibowitz had asked that they all be tried together. Mm-hmm. And uh, Judge Horton decided they will be uh, tried individually. And, you know, uh, prior to when the actual trial started, uh, Leibowitz, Roski, and Chamley had gone over to Old Town, which is a black community, and they had actually met with the Ministerial Alliance and uh, brought people in because his first task was to take on the Alabama legal system. Right. So uh, because of the Scottsboro Boys case in Scottsboro, and they named Scottsboro because they yeah. weren't arrested in Scottsboro, but it's because the, the first trial. trial was held in Scottsboro. And yes. I tell people all the other trials, the retrials, were held in Decatur, Alabama from 1930. Three to 1937. Mm-hmm. But uh, when Leibowitz went to Old Town, what he did was garner African-Americans who did not feel that they would be uh, ostracized or that there would be any repercussions. Mm-hmm. And most people in, in many of the books, they talk about the first list, but there were 11 black men who were called to testify mm-hmm. that they were qualified to serve yes. as jurors and that there had not been any blacks to serve on uh, petty jurors or grand jurors that they could remember or since Reconstruction, actually. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, and many people think that there was only one list. There were actually four lists. Mm-hmm. And these were prominent uh, African Americans. Most of them had two to or three college educations. They owned right. property. They were of a good moral turpitude. Yes, exactly. Yes, so, you know, they testified, and actually their testimony, as well as some of the men who were from blacks who were from Jackson County, Mm -hmm. uh, because of that, then we had the second uh, United States Supreme Mm -hmm. Court ruling. That's right, because 500 or so college-educated Negroes in Morgan County at the time None of those were chosen for the jury. It was all white, all male. Four of the jurors actually that were chosen had actually dropped out of school before they ever even went to high school. And so these were the ones that Judge Horton, you know, this was the jury that Haywood Patterson had. Um, Oh, I don't think I finished about the lard bucket. (laughs) He kept all the letters that were sent to him and telegrams and he kept them all in a lard bucket. And a few years ago, when some folks here in Athens and Limestone County, headed up by the Lawyers Association, who worked to put up a statue to him, his daughter-in-law came to the archives one day and she said, 
I have a bucket, a lard bucket at my house that's got all the letters that Judge Horton saved from the trials. Would you be interested in that? (laughs) Yes, ma'am. So we know a lot about what kind of pressure he was facing and what the reaction was, not just around the country, but around the world. I went through those letters. Yeah. They were from France. They were from Russia. They were from everywhere. Everywhere. And and part of that was because of the Communist Party really rallied the support. I mean, I mean, we think about in, in our lifetime, you've got like the O.J. Simpson trial, you know, that was like the big media thing. Well, this was like the O.J. Simpson trial mm-hmm. of its day. People marched down the streets of Harlem in support. Uh, Albert Einstein wrote a letter in support mm-hmm. of the Scottsboro Boys. And then you had lots of other people who wrote in letters and even death threats against the Scottsboro Boys and directed those at Judge Horton, too. I mean, he had death threats on both sides saying, if you don't choose the way we want you to, Correct. you better watch your back. And ILD actually instituted a letter-writing campaign. So, Yeah, one of the things to note in that bucket full of letters is there are several copies of the exact same resolution with just different organizations filled in. Like you've got the young workers of Birmingham, you've got the Lithuanian workers, you've got, you know, the Jamaican workers, all of this where they had the exact same thing, but they just filled in what they wanted, Mm -hmm. what they demanded from Judge Horton and the jury as far as justice for the Scottsboro boys, which in their mind was to find them not guilty. But then you had just as many letters that, you know, demand justice, which was to let them fry. They did not want to see the boys get off. I say boys. They were teenagers. But really, I mean, they were. I think about this. My sons are 16 and 15. These were the same age as these. And in my mind, these are still boys, you know. And they were facing death. Death for a a man's crime. And, you know, even though uh, the youngest... They were still held in prison the entire time. Oh, yes. Yes. For years. Because it first happened in 31. Mm -hmm. Uh, Haywood Patterson's retrial was in 33. Mm -hmm. And then you had the series of retrials. You know, I I often think, I know those boys root the day they ever got on that train in Chattanooga. You know, it altered the course of their lives. And unimaginably, they could not have imagined it. And, you know, just recently, the state archives found the intake records, intake prison records. So they were phenomenal. That's right. And I believe they are digitized on the Alabama State Archives. So if you go to archives.alabama.gov, you can see those there. Um, And I know that some of the testimony is in the record books there at the Morgan County Archives as well. I think this quote, this is, you know, like I said, all white, all male jury. And what he told them in his first charge to the jury pool, uh, what Judge Horton told him, he said, um, now, gentlemen, under our law, when it comes to the courts, we know neither native nor alien. We know neither Jew nor Gentile. We know neither black nor white, native or foreign born. But to each, it is our duty to mete out even handed justice. There is no other way of enjoying the fruits of liberty except by following the law as laid out to you and obeying the law as it is. So, I mean, he tried to set the tone from the get-go. But the reality was quite different as far as what was going on both inside and outside the courtroom, wasn't it? Do you want to talk a little bit about what was going on in Decatur as Haywood Patterson and Victoria Price and all were testifying? 
Well, of course, the 425 seats, the courtroom was packed, and uh, the sheriff had designed the first come, first serve. So there were people lined up in the hall, and it's interesting because when you look at the photographs at the archives, you see that even the lines were segregated as they were standing out in the hall. But a portion of the courtroom, of course, was designated for whites, and then a portion for blacks. Uh, the two black reporters that Judge Horton had allowed to come in sat at a makeshift desk mm-hmm. over near the segregated section for blacks. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ruby Bates, I'm sorry, Victoria Price, mm-hmm. she's the first to testify. She was something else. <laughs> she sure was. A 16-minute uh, testimony and... Uh, you know, Leibowitz had a model train set, <laughs> and uh, she's just, okay, no, I wasn't on that train. That's a Tory. Right, exactly. <laughs> so she uh, just was a character, and her description of the alleged attack mm-hmm. was so descriptive that uh, some of the men even bowed their head because they could not believe uh, what she was saying. And And you have to keep in mind she had originally said, and, and she and Ruby Bates were actually, I think they concocted the story because they were afraid that they would be arrested because of the Man Act. Mm-hmm. You were, if you recall, Jack Johnson uh, was in jail for the Man Act as well as Chuck Berry. Right, and the Man Con- Act regarded crossing state lines for sex for work. For immoral it? purposes. Right. Oh, immoral. That's right. Immoral but you're purposes. exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were sex workers. So, uh, but one of the things that I like is just the, the dramatics of it because oh, yeah. a prosecutor in Scottsboro also assisted Thomas Knight, who was actually the youngest prosecutor in the state at that time. Mm-hmm. So they pulled out first time indicator. It was not evidence in Scottsboro a pair of panties, mm-hmm. white step-ins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they called step-ins back then. <laughs> and yeah. he asks uh, Victoria, were these the ones that you had on? And she, of course she says yes. And and so they put them into evidence. And then all of a sudden, Knight gets up, and he throws those panties into right. the juror's lap. Yeah. <laughs> So it's just a lot of dramatics. Yeah, I know um, Leibowitz, in asking for a new trial towards the end, after all of this went down, I know he went back over some of the things that Knight did and said. And, you know, he used the N-word frequently. He said, we don't call on a you know, in word to corroborate a white man's story, no matter who <laughs> that may be. And I know he really just kind of gave Thomas Knight what for, for his biased and, and racist discriminatory mm-hmm. remarks to the jury characterizing these young men and the lawyers and so on from New York basically as animals. Right. And, and that was, you know, even today we still, and it's just, you know, we look and we say, well, we progress, but have we, Really? Because you still have uh, anti-black, anti-Semitics. You know, you still have that going on today. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and so Victoria Price, she had her kind of scandalous testimony. And, and maybe it was you who had said at one point, it was like trying to nail Jello to the wall, wasn't it, <laughs> Steve? <laughs> I think Leibowitz was, was stunned. You know, he is one of the best attorneys in the country. Someone mm-hmm. who's never stymied in his previous trials. And he just simply could not could not get her to, to bend at all. I mean, and she stuck to her story as incredulous as it might be, and, mm-hmm. and she just stuck to it. And I think he was very surprised by that. Right. So. 
Right. And there's a very striking photo of her sitting in the courtroom pointing. Yep. They said, what, you remember what happened, this and that? And she said, I don't know, but I do know one thing. That Negro sitting over there raped me, Haywood Patterson, and pointed at him. And, um, and you have to remember, uh, Rebecca, that the original story is that they were at Kelly Broach's house. Right. Mm-hmm. In That's right. Chattanooga. That's right. And so then they have, uh, Leibowitz has some blacks to come in from Chattanooga who actually saw them in the hobo jungle. And then uh, later on, even uh, one of the family members, she said, well, you know, when she testified, she said, well, I went through the phone book and I did not see where there was ever a Kelly Brochy yes. in Chattanooga. Yes. So, you know, it's a lot of dynamics. But they had been seen in the hobo jungle with their boyfriends. And more than one occasion, not just this occasion, but previously as well. Right. And you know, they jumped the train in Huntsville near the Glenwood Cemetery at that hobo jungle. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they, um, even when Dr. Bridges testified in Decatur, he said, well, you know, upon the examination, Mm -hmm. what I found was a lot more consistent with that story of the hobo jungle than what you would find if you had two women who had been assaulted repeatedly by multiple men, you know, that on a train, that's more, you know, what they just described the hobo jungle was more with, without getting too graphic. But, but the testimony was graphic. It was, it, it was oh, yes. especially, you know, in a day and age when people wouldn't even say the word pregnant because that was, you know, scandalous. And, and that is of note because when Judge Horton um, rendered his decision that we'll talk about in a few minutes, he laid out the testimony. And tell about Judge Horton's background and why he might have possibly laid out that medical testimony. He was a, he was a doctor. He was a, doc- he was a trained he doctor. He had gone to medical school. Go ahead. Tell, you tell about that, Peggy. Okay. Yes, he had uh, been to medical school uh, prior to him deciding that he wanted to be an attorney. Mm-hmm. And you see him in the courtroom in yes. the photographs uh, talking to He's actually leaning, in. leaning over, uh, questioning Dr. Bridges about uh, were they hysteria, well, how was the heartbeat, all of that. And right. so that played into his decision, too. I love that June decision when he talked yes. about it. So, yes, exactly. And we're going to get to that. Um, so... After the first day of testimony, which Victoria Price, that's when she testified. Haywood Patterson didn't testify until the next day. But in the meantime, it was a hot mess outside Indicator. I mean, that's just the only way to put it. You had a mob outside, a whole, uh, a whole carloads of folks from Huntsville and Scottsboro were trying to come to, quote unquote, take care of Leibowitz and the Scottsboro boys. So Judge Horton said, fine. Raise the bridge. Y'all remember the old Keller Memorial Bridge? How many times have you ever gotten stopped and (laughs) didn't make it to your doctor's appointment in time because you had to wait on the bridge? But he raised the bridge to keep them from coming out. And, you know, actually, that was that evening. They had had a meeting, and it was reported back to... And and there are so many heroes in the story because Burleson had reported this back to... Burleson, who was the National Guard uh, captain. uh, To Mm -hmm. uh, Judge Horton that... They had met and what their discussions were, and they were not just coming from Huntsville, but they were the clan was coming from Athens too. That's correct. So, They're from Athens, from Decatur. They had met in a Decatur Lodge Hall to, to plan this mob attack, and so um, Burleson he just 
brought in the National Guard. There's a picture in all of these pictures of the guards standing with all the mob behind them outside the courthouse on that second day when Haywood Patterson came to testify. And Judge Horton, before anybody testified, he said, all right, send out the jury. And he's like, this is for the audience. And we have his charge to the audience. And he, I won't go through the whole thing. It's four pages long. But he did say, a man who would engage in anything that would cause the death of any of these prisoners is a murderer. He's not only a murderer, but a cowardly murderer. And a man who we should look upon with all the contempt in our being. And he said, I'm going to say further, the soldiers here and the sheriffs are expected to defend with their lives these prisoners. And they have the authority of this court that anybody who wants to try to do something to these young men, they must expect that they're going to forfeit their lives. And he says, I have no patience with the mob spirit and the spirit that would charge the guilt or innocence of any being without knowing of their guilt as innocence. He says, so far as I'm concerned, I believe I'm as gentle as any man in the world. I don't believe I would harm anyone wrongfully. But when it comes to a question of right or wrong, when it comes to the very civilization, men, no matter how quiet they are or how peaceful they are, there comes a time when they must take a stand either right or wrong. And that's kind of how he conducted this is he was here to determine right or wrong, you know. And so then Haywood Patterson took the stand in his own defense and he said, you know, I didn't do I didn't do what they were accusing me of. And um and then you had, you know, the doctor testified and you had others um that testified. Meanwhile, there was a steady stream of envelopes coming to Judge Horton's desk. I mean, he mentioned this at the end of the trial. He's like, you may have seen that a great many telegrams have been delivered to me here, and I see it too, and they don't affect me whatsoever. They don't determine the truth and justice in this matter. But it was, I mean, we've got in that lard bucket, I mean, there's telegrams from Harlem, letters from Paris. There's Joel Brown, Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, wrote in. I mean, they came from every direction. And you had some... I kind of consider them to be the granddaddies of modern day trolls that, you know, internet trolls that want to get on there somewhere anonymously and say horrible things. Well, that's not a new thing in this world. There were some that signed justice or a civil war veteran of the South or of the North who wrote in just really some hateful, horrible things assigned anonymously. And these were some of the things that were coming to the judge in the middle of this very intense trial. And you talk about the telegraph. You do know that they had a makeshift telegraph office that was put up just for that trial. No, I didn't know that. Was it there in the courthouse? No, it was across the street from the courthouse. Wow. No wonder there was just such a flood of (laughs) telegrams coming in. Well, do one of you want to address then um, what happened with Ruby Bates when she showed up? I'll only say that uh, having, uh, in the initial trial, corroborated everything that, that uh, Victoria Price had said, and then she kind of disappeared off the off the map, Ruby Bates did, and so it was a great concern that you have one of the women who was alleged to have been raped, but not the other one. Mm-hmm. When she shows up, though, uh, she looks very, very different, and she doesn't look like somebody that had uh, been in a hobo jungle, doesn't even look like, you know, uh, dressed as a southern woman, typically would back then. She's dressed to the nines in very fashionable, up-to-date, northern style. And uh, that is what's so fascinating to me, that when she comes and basically recants everything that she said in the, in the Scottsboro trial, the prosecutors don't even focus on that. Don't try to undermine, well, why are you lying now? Why are you doing mm-hmm. this right now? They then go after her saying, where did you get those clothes? Where have mm-hmm. you been all this time? 
uh, who, who, you don't have any money and you don't have an education. How have you gotten along? So it becomes now more of a character assassination and then uh, finding her guilty by association with northerners or with uh, you know, the communists or with those who are Jewish. And uh, again, Wade Wilson, wasn't it, who said to the jury, you need to know that, uh, I have to quote, it's paraphrased, that uh, justice in Alabama can't be bought with Jew money from New York. Mm-hmm. That's and right. That, that mm-hmm. was his reference to her and the way she was dressed and things like that. So again, it had nothing to do with her testimony. It had everything to do with that she was a different, seemed to be a different person. And they just simply shifted their strategy to attack her character and where she'd been as opposed to She's saying something completely different now. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very odd. Yeah, exactly. And, and she came in, and, and Judge Horton asked her, well, why did you lie? You know, mm-hmm. they asked that question. And she said, well, I told it like Victoria told me, because yeah. she said we would be arrested for crossing those state lines. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with Victoria, she would just say, when they would say, well, you know, Ruby said this, and remember, they found that letter, too, that uh, Ruby Bates had written but Victoria would say, oh, that's some of Ruby's dope. <laughs> uh-huh. That's right. So it, once again, it, it became not really so much about the facts. It was more about um, preconceived notions and, and so on and playing into the emotions of the jury and everybody in the room yep. and everybody who was watching the trial. In fact, I'm, I'm about to um, read a portion of Judge Horton's charge to the jury before they began deliberating. And we have that because it was printed in the New York Times. And there were papers from, you know, New York Times and other big newspapers. Also mm-hmm. a lot of um, black-owned right. newspapers right. from all over the, the country covered this trial as well. And that's interesting to note how, you know, those different perspectives of how it was covered. But, and, you know, I was just so surprised that Decatur Daily use the AP, uh-huh. uh, Tom Davenport, uh-huh. to cover their stories rather than them getting involved with it. Well, and the News Courier was the same way. Even though Judge Horton was a beloved judge, very well known in town, you don't see hardly anything about the trial at all in the local newspapers. It was something that they just kind of wanted to keep their hands off. They were, they were not inclined to stay on that and to point out the fact that this was going on with one of Athens and Limestone County's own, you know. But the, the black reporters, uh, when we read these stories, we really get a different outlook exactly right. from their, uh, Oh, you know, yes. we see, we do see things differently. Sure. So, you know, I pulled a lot of things from the Afro uh, paper and the uh, Norfolk Journal mm-hmm. in my book because of their covering. So they told how they interacted with the neighborhood and they told what they saw too mm-hmm. in the courtroom. So I would like to go into that more. I think what we need to do is create a bit of a cliffhanger because we're running up on the end of this episode. This case is just fascinating to me, and I love talking to y'all about it. I want to tell y'all about Judge Horton, what he told the jury before they went to deliberations, and then y'all going to have to come back for part two to find out what happened. What do y'all think? (laughs) Let's do it. Okay, so they get to the end of testimony. Is there anything else y'all want to mention about the testimony before we go to deliberations? We're going to deliberate, and we're going to come back. All right, so when Judge Horton, when the testimony was complete, and um, he charged the jury. He said, take the evidence, sift it out, and find the truths and untruths, and render your verdict. 
It will not be easy to keep your minds solely on the evidence. Much prejudice has crept into it. It has come not only from far away, but from here at home as well. I have done what I thought to be right as the judge of this court, no matter what the personal cost to me might be. I want y'all stick a pen in that little phrase there. You are not trying whether or not the defendant is white or black. You are not trying that question. You are trying whether or not this defendant forcibly ravaged a woman. You are not trying lawyers. You're not trying state lines, but you are here at home as jurors, a jury of citizens under oath, sitting in the jury box, taking the evidence and considering it, leaving out any outside influence. Things may vex you. I might say that the court has been vexed about a great many things. It may have been evident to you that a great many telegrams came in here to me since I have been here, but gentlemen, they do not affect me whatever. Are the great principle which the court desires to be see done and the great thing the jury desires to see done and that is to see justice done in this case and this is the part that i just this is a quotable quote right here and it's so timeless we are a white race and a negro race here together we are here to live together our interests are together the world at this time and in many lands is showing intolerance and showing hate It seems sometimes that love has almost deserted the human bosom. It seems that only hate has taken its place. It is only for a time, gentlemen, because it is the great things in life, God's great principles, matters of eternal right, that alone live, wrong dies, and truth forever lasts, and we should have faith in that. And with that, he remanded it to the jury. And with that, we're going to call a halt to part one and come back for part two where you can get to hear the rest of the story of Judge Horton and the Scottsboro Boys in this case. What do y'all say? That's good. All right. So with that, thank you for joining us for this episode of Homegrown History and come back next time to hear the rest of the story. You've been listening to Homegrown History presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library and the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. For more information and to submit questions or suggestions, please visit limestonearchives.com. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices series, check out our website at alcpl.org. You can also listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.